Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Techers. I know it's a cliche name. Uh, Investories podcast is all about adding value, all about adding those digestible bits of content and information. And we're super excited to bring you part two of this interview. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Please reach out to us anytime you have any questions or just want to connect or say hi or say we're doing really well or hey, you could even say we're not doing well, but please don't do that. Uh, Investories podcast at gmail.com and investories pod on your socials and we look forward to hearing from you and uh without further ado here's part two i yeah and i i love what you said there about anybody listening rewind for a couple minutes and, and listen to what katie said again because if you ever hear a guru or somebody trying to sell you something they're going to say hey passive income is the way replace your income and you'll be free forever so much truth to that there's just so many other moving pieces to, to an investor who invests for passive invests for passive income to live on that a lot of people don't really think about. You know, it's like and a, the biggest one, the most important piece I, to me personally that you said right there is when you get to the point where you've replaced your income and now you're living on it, you have done nothing to grow. Mm-hmm. Yes, you've gotten your time back. Okay, if you are a true investor and you're not doing things actively and it's passive, which is virtually impossible. But if it is somewhat passive, yeah, you've got your time back, which is great. But good luck getting growth. The only thing that you really have to hope for is appreciation in rents and appreciation in values where you can someday maybe refinance. We're talking years for this kind of stuff Mm -hmm. to work correctly. And um, you're you're speaking truth in contrary to what a lot of the the big gurus are trying to sell you. And I love that and I appreciate that. So thank you for for driving that point home because that's big. Yeah, I mean, one thing to remember, whether it's real estate or your business, growth is super expensive. And so where passive income makes sense is once you're done growing. It's almost like your retirement account, right? You build up this big portfolio, and then when you're ready to just live off of that, it's there and you can. But if you're trying to build a portfolio and lift off the passive income, well, where is the money coming from to invest in the next one? And that leaves syndications, right? And so you can generate income by charging fees and put together syndications. My deal was I am going to work just as hard on a deal that I own 100% of as a deal that I own ultimately 5 to 10% of once all the GPs you know, split up their part. So I didn't want to own 5% of 7,000 doors to me. That sounds horrible. Now, that's just me. It's great for some people. I'm with you. I, I want to own 100% of everything, but I also realized that was going to take forever to get there, unless you're Kyle. Like, he's the only guy I know who can build a whole freaking <laughs> portfolio all by himself. He's amazing. And so we tried to, like, find the middle ground. How can we own 30 to 60% of everything so that we could have it accumulate faster? Well, it's not pulling all the cash flow out of everything that's generating money and spending it on lifestyle because you got to have something to be able to dump into the next project as long as you're growing. And then once you're done growing and you're ready to do whatever the next phase of life is, then you can live off the cash flow of that portfolio. Yeah. 
I love that. That's that's so interesting. One of the things I was reading your profile before we uh, had this conversation. One of the things that was really interesting is you talk about um, the vision and passion and kind of developing mm-hmm. that um, as as part of this rejuvenation piece. And I, I I think that sounds really really good, especially when it's your hometown. Yeah. Uh, did you look at other markets as well, or was it were you kind of laser focused on on being at home? Yeah. So it just worked out well for us. I'm fourth generation here. And so I grew up with the stories of what downtown used to be, which is super similar in a lot of towns. And my parents remember it being super active. It was boarded up by the time I was a kid. And I spent my whole life listening to people say that it was going to be revitalized. And I was like, you people, a bunch of crazy nuts. Like, it's just never going to happen. And then once it did, it allowed us to, we were just in the right location. But it's happening in towns all over town. We could have easily gone to another one. And now we get a lot of interest from surrounding towns that call us and say, hey, we have a building. And it's usually a city because they're trying to get theirs ignited. Hey, we have this building. Would you guys come here and rent? innovate this building and kind of start it, do what you've done, bring people downtown. And, you know, we, we could do that, but then now I got to build a whole new team in a new location. And so we've been lucky that there's enough growth here that we can keep our people here and just be consultants or equity partners in those deals without having to create the team. But we are super passionate about this. And I'm like that about, I'm all in or all out. Like I can't be stuck being miserable. Just ask my family, you know, like I feel like my parents were the generation that they were like silently suffering for the benefits of their children. Like I will suffer for the benefit of my children, but it will not be silent. You will know the sacrifice that I am making like daily. Right. (laughs) And so that also applies to my lifestyle. I don't want to be doing a job that I'm miserable in. Otherwise I'd have just kept my W2 job. Right. And so, I have to be passionate about it, but I'm not just passionate about my town. I'm passionate about the reuse of all of these downtowns where the investment has already been made. They're super cool old buildings. They're way better than the building you can build today. And so we want to enable and help other people like see the opportunity, understand the opportunity and be able to implement it wherever they're at. Because even though we're not doing it, it's that good can be spread all across the country. We don't need to be there to do it. We're just trying to show people that it's totally accessible and it's not nearly as intimidating as it sounds. They've already done the hard stuff. They've already put all the utilities there. The trend is already getting people to come back down town. So then you just have to have the vision and the pieces and figure out how to just manage the process. And so that's our passion when it's outside of our town is helping people be comfortable doing it in their town. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. And it's just a it's, it's just a, a feel-good thing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You get to actually see everything that you do all the time, and there's a lot of pride in that. And that's that goes a long way as towards mental health and just essentially longevity of staying in your business. You know, you can look at this and be like, I created that. That looks that way because of me. And that's that's a big piece when, you, when you're when you in the real estate game. You, you want to be proud of your – unless you're a slumlord, which I know you're not, and I'm not, and John's not. <laughs> Try so not to be. You want to make sure that you're – well, I don't know about John. I've never been to the, I don't know where I've, I've never been to the UK where he's got his rental over there, but yeah, I, I, I know that we're not like that. I know you're not like that. And it's, it's definitely a big sense of pride. Well, the big, I'd like to talk oh, about sorry. that. Sir. No, no, go ahead. I was go just going to say the big connection for me is we're buying these old buildings and yes, they're run down, but we still see like the beauty and the coolness of them. And I think, oh my gosh, like that could be three generations forward 
And they would be like my great grandkids saying like your mom or your great grandmother and great great grandmother built this building. And so it's super yeah. real to me because I'm buying those buildings that were built several generations ago and hopefully building buildings that several generations from now people will have the same feeling. At least if they tear it down, it will hurt their soul. I want it to be beautiful enough <laughs> that they at least that. pause and think about it before they just knock it down. Yeah, right. Katie's going to come back and haunt me for tearing this thing down. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I would love to get into everybody's favorite subject, which is money. And, I want uh, more. How? Uh, since, yeah, right. <laughs> Don't we all? But it makes Possibly. the world go around. And, and um, for those that are just trying to get into this, you're kind of a two-parter here. You've, you've been in what the majority of our listeners are in now, which is fix and flips and burrs and buy and holds and long-term rentals. And then you've now into what a lot of people want to get to, which is redevelopment. So maybe you can touch on both subjects. What were you using as far as financing goes for your early stage renovations and your long-term holds? And then uh, I'm sure it's a big can of worms to get into the financing because uh, I know I happen to know that you you do a lot of partnerships mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to some of your your revitalization for your downtown stuff. Maybe touch on that a little bit too. Yeah. So when we started, well, you know that seventeen thousand dollar first condo, I used private money for one. I don't think I could have even gotten a bank loan for seventeen thousand, right? But I really wanted to borrow money, so I just you know it wasn't hard to find somebody who would make a seventeen thousand dollar loan. Um, when we did our apartments, we just provided the down payment and it's been a long time, but if I remember right, we had to put like 15 or 20% down and then we financed the purchase and the renovations from the, um, bank. So, you know, we were buying those, man, I can't even remember, but for sure less than 200,000. Um, and so, you know, you, I was, you know, in a corporate job and then my business partner obviously had built assets. So we had the money there for those down payments. What, once we went to flipping, we didn't want to use bank debt because that was a higher risk, right? Could we actually sell it when we were done? So when we sold those fourplexes, the equity that we, the forced equity and the natural appreciation, even over such a short period of time, just because of the time period, provided that seed money to start our first few flips to prove that that was working um, and that we could make money. So our first flips, we just did 100% cash that we had gotten out of our uh, fourplexes. And then um, the flips, you know, like they just generate pops of cash and they fed each other. The problem with flips and anybody who's in in flipping knows this is it never is like, okay, we're going to start house one in January and then we'll start house two in March and then house three, you know, it's going to be spread out really even. And then we're going to have this house sell. It's never like that. It's like, we're always buying everything at once or we're selling everything at once. So you're either flushing cash or you're smooth out of cash. So I had gone back to a friend of mine and just said, you know, like I'm having issues with cash flow, um, just in certain times, like I have this house under contract, but it hasn't closed yet. So I can't get the next house. And he actually was like, well, why don't we just do a line of credit? And, um, so that's how it started. I didn't do hard money loans. They sounded scary and expensive. And he just offered, look, I'll just have this money here. You draw on it when you need the interest was expensive, but there were no fees. I had a door deed of trust and we just kind of put it in the drawer and would record it if we needed it. So it was super simple. So it was worth kind of the high interest rate to do it. And it became our working capital. Then when we started getting that pile of money, we needed to invest it one for taxes purposes. Then we would start just flipping it into the, the smaller projects. And the first one we did, it was with partners. So the general contractor, um, did sweat equity, the appraiser. I mean, the, um, 
architect did sweat equity and then we put the cash into it. And I have this relatively small deal with seven different people involved, like, cause we were so scared. I'll never do that again. Like every quarter I have to write seven tiny distribution checks because we have to split it so many ways. I think it reminds me of how fearful I was on that first deal. And then we did our first development deal, which was a seven town home. So we bought these three little houses that were rentals. They were low income rentals and they cash flowed just like they were. But we thought, what if we could build townhomes here? And the reality is there had not been new houses built in our downtown in my lifetime. So we had no idea if it would appraise. We had no idea if people would really buy it. So we said, let's just buy it as a rental and go talk to the city. And when we went and talked to the city, that's when we learned the power of being aligned with city officials. You'll never be motivated the same way as city officials, right? Their interests really are different than your interests. You're trying, you know, to survive and feed your family and they collect paychecks and they're trying to enforce rules. So those will never align. But if you're all headed to the same direction where you all want a beautiful downtown that's being revitalized, they can provide a lot of value. And they, I said, Hey, we want to build five townhomes. Well, I didn't know there was a minimum lot width and that we couldn't fit five townhomes on there, but they were like, Hey, we'll do an exception. You can have narrower houses. And, um, we were, they were like, but we want you to park in the back instead of the front. I'm like, sure, whatever. Well, there's not enough room. No problem. We'll give you part of the land to give you the ability to park in back. And what we learned was in old downtowns, they usually have super wide street right-of-ways. They're like 80 foot wide. And that's how they prevented fire back in the day. Well, now that that damn fire marshal makes you have 16 different fire prevention mechanisms in every building you build, you don't need an 80 foot right-of-way. No offense, Kyle. Um, <laughs> on the fire men. I love a fireman. I hate a fire marshal. Um, so anyway, um, so they released a lot of the land yeah. and then they said, <laughs> they said, Hey, you know what we can do? We can give you enough land, make your houses narrow enough that you could build seven. And we were like, what? And we left there and they were so excited about it that we were scared. We were like, what do they know that we don't know? So we did, we built the first three. And sold them and then built the next four. So again, very small increments to make sure we weren't taking too big of a risk. And what it turned out was we would have only broken even had we been able to build five. It was the last two that the city gave us the land to be able to build seven where all the profit actually came in. But on that deal, my investors were actually past employers and people that I had worked with. And so I knew them all very well. They were nervous about doing a bank loan on a project that had not been done before without comps. So they said, hey, let's do it 100% cash on this first one. They were also conservative. But then we don't have the pressure of the bank. If we have to hold it longer, if we have to rent it, we don't have debt service to worry about. So they provided the money. We provided the land, the work, and then we sold them and we split it 50-50 so that we didn't, I mean, we had like design fees in it, but they provided the bulk of the money. And then when we rolled, we got the land across the street and rolled into phase two, then everyone was comfortable with proof the concept. So they provided the money plus we got debt on it and that allowed us to build faster and bring on multiple projects. So everything we've done, like I say, you know, oh, don't have fear, just jump in, build the parachute on the way down. But it's it's not recklessly, right? It's still with like methodical thoughts about plan A, B and C and worst case scenarios and just making sure 
that we would be comfortable with whatever that worst case scenario is, and then picking up momentum and velocity. The reality is, had we not had any fear back then, we would probably be retired now because that was the sweet spot of real estate. Had we built everything we could as fast as we could, it would have paid us in dividends. But, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. <laughs> Casey, how how did you find those um those partners to uh or, or those financiers? Yeah, so relationships and network. So I only have a handful of business partners, like four, I think, and four or five. And most of them I've known over 20 years. And the very first partner I got was actually a business owner for a startup company that I worked for. And when he sold the company, I had quasi equity and it gave me the runway to quit my job. Basically I had one year salary. And that's when I said, I'm just going to pay myself just like I would with a salary. And at the end of the year, if real estate doesn't work out, I'm going to go back and get another job. So he was kind of my mentor, my consultant. So I'm showing him my business plan. I never thought that I never thought people would lend me money. It never occurred to me to even ask for that. Like that seemed unreasonable. Why would people give me their hard earned money? Right. That's how, like how many limiting beliefs I came into all this with. So I'm just showing my business plan and how the numbers are going to work, getting his advice because he was a business owner and he's an entrepreneur. And he said, Hey, would you let me invest in this deal? And I was like, oh, no, like, I don't want to take your money because what if things go wrong? And he was like, so basically what you're saying is you have an opportunity and you don't trust my judgment enough to allow me to invest in your project. And I was like. Huh, that's interesting. Man, talk about a hot seat. Yeah, yeah. He's basically like, you're insulting my financial intelligence by telling me I don't know a good deal. And so he's the one who kind of helped me overcome that mindset. I got to interrupt you and ask, how did, how did that, that talk back make you feel? I mean, to me, I'm sitting here trying to put myself in your shoes. Mm -hmm. Like, how would I feel if somebody said that back to me? And it's like, he just gave you a major vote of confidence. Oh, it, yeah, right? yeah, I mean, totally. It totally, that, that's huge. And, and, yeah, it raised the pressure. Like it intensified the pressure because now, I mean, from his perspective, it was genius because now I have all this pressure that he has, comp- he has more faith in me than myself, basically is what he told me. And then he was very intentional in the way he worded it. He's basically trying to teach me a lesson. And then we spent a lot of time about, so what investors do you go after? Do not go after an investor that needs the money because that is too much pressure. And you don't want to have to make decisions to, that will impact their lifestyle, right? They need food, fire, and water, and you don't need to be involved in that. But once you get to a certain level of income, your challenge is continuing to put that income to work. And those are the investors that you want to go after. And so he was my first investor. And then two more people that he knew, he was like, hey, these guys want to invest too. So they really all came from him. And then a third one was, or the fourth one was my original first person I sat next to when I worked at a commercial bank, who's like number four or five from the top now, who makes massive income and has zero tax write-offs. And so, uh, yeah, so they invest in our projects and are the size of our projects. You know, each project that we do, that's a redevelopment, we raise anywhere from 500 to a million bucks. So we're not talking about a huge amount of money and we want to keep as much as we can. So we provide as much as that cash as possible. And then we fill gap, stop the rest with these investors. And so the money really does go a long way. Now we're nearing a point where they're probably going to be at their capacity geographically 
and in one investor. So we might have to go out and find other investors, but I've turned, they've, they've, they've made me spoiled. They never see my projects. <laughs> they never have any idea what's going on. They totally have faith in me. I love that. I do not want some needy, high touch investor now. So I'm kind of spoiled. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Right? yeah. That, that's, that, that should be, that's a lot of confidence. <laughs> I think that's a great deal. Yeah. Now, right now, you, you're dealing with a couple of different things. You're in the commercial space in downtown Bryan, mm-hmm. and you're also doing, I guess, multifamily commercial, you know, five-plus units. Um, so you're developing both. Is that right? Yeah. So our deal is we'll develop anything that can be deeded as a single-family property, so like townhomes. We'll sell that to create income to be able to put into our mixed-use or multifamily buildings so that we can own a higher percentage of them. So we do both. Gotcha. Okay, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm curious about time frame on this type of thing. So, And I'm sure it's so different from project to project depending on size. Maybe you can just break down one of these for us. Um, so from the time that you find this deal mm-hmm. until the time that you close it, you do all of your renovations and you have these things available for lease, what are you guys, like I said, you can pick just one because I'm sure they're all different, but about what, what kind of time frame are your investors expecting to have to have their money out before they start getting paid back? Yeah, so it, it does depend on the project, but because even if it's a renovation or new construction, it's so massive that the timeline is similar. What's a bigger driver is where you are, and all of ours are in Texas in a town that moves relatively quickly. So we'll buy the property, we being like me and my business partner, we take the land down. Sometimes it has a house on it and we can rent it. Sometimes it's just a lot if it's a new construction type deal. And then we'll go ahead and get all the architectural design and engineering and zoning and permitting and all of that done so that when we take the investor's money, it's when construction starts. From the time that we buy it, if we're able to buy and just go right into design, it can be six months to a year, depending on the level of design that's needed from an architect. So we'll hold a property generally about a year. Best case scenario, though, it has houses on it and it's not costing us any money. And then once the investor comes in, it can take us up to a year to build it. And then we tell them two years to lease it up. Usually we're leased up within six months. But the goal is to take, we'll do a two-year interest-only note regardless. And the goal is for that second year when it's interest-only but income earning, that we're um, stocking all that cash away to be our reserve. So that as soon as we get our reserve met, we start paying quarterly dividends. So usually within 24 months, we're starting dividends. And if it's a refinance, usually within six months of getting it fully leased, we'll refinance. So they're just starting to really get their quarterly dividends. And generally, we'll get 60 to 100% of their money back at that refinance, which is about two years in. And what, what do those dividends typically look like? Yeah, so usually like our 20 loft um, a building, usually between 40 and 60 a year is the free cash flow that we try to redistribute on our, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20-ish units. That's about what the um, free cash flow is after debt service. Nice. Yeah, which is like 8 to 10% cash on cash. And, you know, I try and hit at least 15% ROI. Right now, it's a a challenge, right? Because all real estate is overinflated because interest rates have been low. It's the squeeze. Price discovery is happening so fast, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. 
that leads me on to my next question, actually, which is what. So if someone's getting started in this, what are the kind of trends you've observed over the last few years or the, probably the last six months more than anything um, in terms of changes? Like, I guess, rate changes, mm-hmm. but labor costs, um, yeah. rents. How are you tracking all those variables? Yeah. So it's interesting because we were just wrapping up a mixed use building. It was relatively small and it happened at the worst time of all this mess, right? So we had floating rate construction loan and that rate just went up and up and up and up and up and up. And I think it's like at eight and a half percent now. Um, we just finished it. We were in the peak. We bought the most expensive lumber. <laughs> we had theft because yes. And then we had theft because prices were so high. People were stealing stuff off the job site lumber. We had the pi- the copper torn out um, like Everything that could go wrong, labor was at its peak. Everyone was slow. So you're paying more than you ever have for labor, getting the worst service that you've ever gotten. And it was like the worst time to be building. Um, We ended up going back to the bank to get a little more money to finish it out. The good news is our loan to value is great. We're still at only 65% loan to value now with the current appraise. The tenants have moved in and it's we're this is our first month to actually collect rent. But it floats for another, you know, year until it, the rate sets. Because how we do it is we always get the bank to do two years construction and then automatically term, even if the term isn't great. That way we're not at risk if banks aren't lending on mixed-use properties anymore or what. We know we have some permanent financing in place. And so that was going on. We're finishing that one up. During that time, we were designing our one we just broke ground on, which is an 18-unit apartment building. We've done all the site work. It was over budget, but I couldn't get a framer to bid it because the framers are like, I can build six houses and not look at the plans, or I can build your apartment building and actually have to read the plans and figure out what you want because it's a different, unique project. I don't even want to do the yours. And then all of a sudden, about, I don't know, two months ago, I started getting texts from random people that said, I see that y'all just poured a slab. We'd like to bid your framing. So when that started happening, yeah, as soon as that started happening, I realized our subs are looking ahead because they're not, you know, we're dealing with relatively small subs. They're not forecasting the economy, right? They just, what job is next? And they all looked up and realized we don't have a job next. So we pulled all our contracts, anything that hadn't started. So paving, electrical, all of it, we pulled the contracts. We just sat while we were finishing up the slab and all that and um, just sat. And then we rebid our electrical and it came in 35,000 less. We got a framer who's doing it on budget. So that's when I say like price discovery is happening so fast. We're still going to be over budget on this project because we were for the site work. But if we could start it today and go forward, I think we're pretty much going to be on budget for everything that's happening now forward. We still got what we've already incurred that's going to be over budget. And so that feels good. We leased up our other building that just finished, so demand is still there. So the returns are not going to be as good because we're going to be over budget, but it is still going to be a cash-flowing asset. I still feel good about it appreciating, um, and it'll be interesting whenever we go to do the refinance to see to see what the value is and if values are going up or down. So far, we haven't had the impact of the cap rate reducing the value of the properties, but it could just be the timing of how our projects are working out right now. You know, that's something that, that could be coming. But the thing that we did on this project that really helped was we asked the bank at the start of construction, will y'all just fix our rate instead of floating it during construction? 
And they said yes. <laughs> Wow. I may have said because another bank did too, but I don't know. But they said yes. <laughs> and so <laughs> and so right now we're under construction and rates are going up, but we're set at our rate. And so we didn't know to ask that on the last one. But when we saw the impacts of it, when we put this loan in place, we said, let's do it. Now, we have another one fully permitted. We're ready to start and break ground on. But with rates like they are right now, the cost hasn't come down enough for it just seems like too big a risk for too little return so we're just kind of sitting hanging out probably going to go to the city see if they'll give us some concessions to try and get our costs down to see if we can make it make sense because the challenge is i still think what you want is an asset it will appreciate over time but you don't want to stretch yourself so thin that you know if there's a stumbling block it takes you down Thank you for listening to this episode of Investories podcast. And uh, as you can imagine, we're super stoked with that content, amazing strategies, amazing techniques um, that we've really been able to dig into. And uh, we're looking forward to bringing kind of the next phase of that, which is really all about uh, the case study kind of real world examples and how you can do the same. We're going to call it Wednesday Wins and we're going to tackle that on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Investories Podcast. We all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.